I was sitting this morning, as I do, and I had this poem come into my mind, short poem from the uh, Zen teacher, poet, calligrapher, Ryokan. It's a bit mischievous, Ryokan. Uh, here's the poem. He wrote, Buddha is your mind. <laughs> you just stop right there, huh? <laughs> Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't seek for anything but this. Buddha is your mind, and the way goes nowhere. Don't seek for anything but this. <laughs> and he goes on. This is a turn. He says, if you point your cart north when you want to go south, how will you arrive? <laughs> so he's offering up in this short few phrases the whole paradox of the path and teaching. Right? On the one hand, there's nowhere to go, there's nothing to do, everything you need is already right here. That's true. In an ultimate sense, in an absolute sense, that's exactly the truth. And waking up is not waking up to something else, it's waking up to what's already here, seeing it clearly. Right? Don't seek for anything but this. But then he goes on, kindly, in the same way that the end of that uh, chanting of the uh, for immeasurable says without too much attachment or too much aversion and he gets a little bit practical <laughs> so he's, he's speaking now to a different part of us and he says if you point your cart north when you want to go south how will you arrive so it's true on one hand that everything we need is already here it's all good all we need to do is settle down be present, wake up and yet we're all turned around Half the time, we think we want something in that direction, but we really need to be going in a different direction. We're spun about. We're confused. This is one of the great uh, reorientations in the Buddhist context from the Judeo-Christian tradition that I grew up in, which is there's nothing that says anywhere that we are bad. We are not bad. We are confused. We are trying to go north when we're pointing our cart south or vice versa. We're turned around. And so the teaching is not trying to eke goodness out of us. The teaching is to have us wake up to the goodness that's already here. It's already here. <laughs> you can't make it any better. What you can do is wake up to your confusion. And you can start to get clear about which way you're pointing your cart. That would be good. Right? So on one hand, there's nothing to do, nowhere to go. On the other hand, it's really useful to take out a map and take a look and say, oh, if I want to go to Berkeley, maybe it would be better to go over the Bay Bridge than to go over the Golden Gate Bridge. I'll get there maybe sometime, but it's going to be a long haul. Right? I'm going to waste a lot of time and gas and so on. So useful. And we have to, as we walk the path, we straddle these two dimensions. The dimension of it's already all done and complete, and the dimension of our confusion. And when we are awake, 
that's what it's like. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. It's all perfect. And when we are not awake, meaning when we're um, confused, how do you know that you're confused? Look for the suffering. <laughs> if you're suffering, which does not, is not the same as having pain, you could be in pain, physical pain, say, and not necessarily be suffering. But if you're suffering, if you're rubbing up against the circumstances of your life, going wah, 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 right? Don't like. Want it to be different. That's suffering. If you're suffering, that suggests you are confused. You are not seeing things as they are because you're resisting or grasping. You are chafing against life itself. Now, where we get confused as human beings, I've been, I've been saying this pretty much same teaching for quite some time, but it's so useful and fundamental. This is basically Buddhist Psychology 101, which is we come into practice so often imagining that if we could just something, if we could just be good, if we could just be better, if we could just be have a better meditation practice, if we could fill whatever your version is, we could just stop this or get more of that, then we would be awake. But the thing is, our confusion is that we mistake being awake for being in a pleasant state. What we really want, if we're honest, is we just want to be in a pleasant state all the time, which you can do, but you have to take some very uh, easy-to-access drugs, actually. That's pretty routine now that people just get handed out all kinds of stuff that kind of makes everything sort of pleasant, but it also makes it kind of flat, right? So it's not really awake. It's just a little calm and numbed out, right? And unfortunately, some, sometimes people come to meditation ex- looking for that. They're not really looking to be free. They're looking to be less, to have a happy state. So it's just a substitute for all the other things we do to try to find a happy state. Now let me be really clear. If you have a happy state, <laughs> good. Enjoy it. It's, it's not that having pleasant experience is a bad thing, but if you pay attention closely, you'll notice that when you have a happy state, it's happy, and then pretty quickly, most of us, we grab on. We want, us, we want it to stay, or we try to like, right? We try to kind of pump it up. And as soon as the happy state is no longer just arising on its own, happy, pleasant, but we're grabbing onto it or trying to, you know, get it, wrangle it, to make it stretch or last or something, it's not pleasant anymore. (laughs) And then, of course, the flip side is when we have an unpleasant state, we just make it much worse. What do we do? We grit our teeth and we bear down and we resist and then we resent and then we blame and all that. I had a I had a facial. This is embarrassing to say on tape, but sorry. The other day, and I noticed because I they put in those big, big mirrors. It was kind of horrifying. But anyway, these lines that I have in my face. And I asked the per, the woman 
well, what do people do when you have lines like that? And she said, Botox. And I thought, <laughs> she was just being honest. That's what people do. And I thought, oh, but that's, that's, those are the lines for me that are all, the hundred million times that I went, no, to my experience. And it's probably good to keep them there because it reminds me that that's what happens when you are resisting, er, trying, er, your experience, right? That's how life marks us. So this is our dilemma. On the one hand, everything is great, and on the other hand, we are confused and getting batted about by uh, our experience. So I've been talking for the last few weeks and been on a little bit of a soapbox about this idea, model, archetype of a bodhisattva as a, um, a reorientation to how we approach our lives. Because, part mostly because of what I just said, that we're confused, most of us. We imagine, we're imagining that happiness is going to come from places it's not going to come from. And we're um, <laughs> imagining that if we just that a lot of that difficult stuff would go away. And again, just like if you have a happy state, enjoy, please enjoy. And in the same way, if so, there's something really difficult in your life, this is not um, a prescription to just roll over and be passive. If there's something difficult happening and you could do something about it, please do something. But don't expect that will make you happy, for one. And the other, is um, it's not going to make you happy for very long <laughs> because there's more. There will be more, right? So again, we're reorienting from I want pleasant states and happiness to I'm looking for a sense of freedom right in the middle of all of it, right in the middle of the right? The happiness comes and then it's gone, wah. The difficulty comes and we resist and we tense up and we get these funny lines in our face, right? That's how it is. So this is uh, this archetype that I've been describing of a bodhisattva is in a way um, an example, a model of here's a whole different orientation and approach to our life that will feel a little uh, odd, but that's because we're confused. <laughs> that's because we're party pointing our, cart no our carts north when we want to go south. So this is like how you part point your cart south, but we're used to wanting to go north, so it feels a little off to us. So a bodhisattva is that's a term. Bodhi, the word bodhi is wisdom, or wise, or awake, or enlightened. So often, um, uh, when I first heard the term, it was described as an awakened being, or an enlightened being. But in a way, really it's more, it's more active than that. It's a, a bodhisattva would be better described as an awakening being, or an enlightening being. Because the heart of understand of the bodhisattva's wisdom is understanding our connectedness. And so 
the, the probably most significant aspect of a bodhisattva is what we might call this altruistic impulse, this wish to help. So a bodhisattva, we say, is a wise bodhisattva is a being, particularly a sentient being. Sentient is a feel, it means feeling, sensitive. So it's a wise, sensitive being or a wise, feeling being. And that altruistic impulse of a bodhisattva comes from the willingness to be touched because we are sensitive. We're willing to actually be touched by our lives, to be touched by the world. Sounds simple, but we all know how easy it is to shut, to push away, to deny, to close down, to reject. I had a phone call today with a woman I've worked with for many years, quite a beautiful and sincere practitioner. And she was struggling because she has a child who is struggling. And in the conversation, she was berating herself for being a bad mother. And at some point, I said to her, this is a little hard to say, I said, but part of what I hear is that it's easier for you to berate yourself for being a bad mother than to actually feel the pain of not being able to help this daughter, this young girl who you love. Stop the conversation. That's what we do. That's our confusion. We, we really don't want to feel the difficult stuff, and so we create all kinds of ways to, in some ways, feel the lesser pain. And then we're just miserable. But at least it's our fault. It's really hard to deal with the kind of pain that doesn't seem to have a place or a person to blame. And there's plenty of that to go around. Again, this doesn't mean that there aren't real issues that require real action. You know? And we, I mean, there's huge, whether it's climate change issues or racism issues or the action that brought about the overturning of, or the, yeah, the overturning of gay marriage being illegal, right? All of those both took and require real doing and effort on the part of many, many, many beings. So this is not an excuse for being passive. I'm not talking about that. But in order to do that in a sustainable way, in order to address the real difficulty, we have to have enough stability to be able to face directly the real difficult stuff without creating subversions, you know, kind of ghost versions of difficulty because we don't really want to look over there. Now, why is it so difficult? <laughs> the old Zen teacher who used to say, I don't answer why questions. Mm-hmm. And people would get really irritated with him, including me, because I had a lot of why why questions. But he said, you know, I don't think people really want answers to why questions. They want answers to how questions. So the practice is not so much interested in telling you about the why of your experience. 
It's interested in pointing you directly to a path and a practice that can help you with the how, that can help you in a very practical way, as is sort of in the second part of Rio Khan's little poem, uh, help us in a very practical way learn how to point our cart to get where we want to go. So to deconfuse, <laughs> not with theory and philosophy, but with you know this very simple, so difficult practice called uh, sit down and be still. That was a sidebar from Bodhisattva. So a Bodhisattva is a wise, sentient, sensitive, feeling being who is open enough, I've been describing it as, be, to, to, be, to be able to be... <laughs> Hello, Belle. Uh, inspired. Right? So the first part of uh, waking up to being a Bodhisattva is this willingness to inspire, to take in, to be touched by. And sometimes inspiration, what comes in, is wonderful and positive. And sometimes it's not. It's difficult. And I think for all of us, as we walk a path like this, we actually need both. Many, many people, including myself, come into practice because of kind of negative side of inspiration. In the story of the Buddha, it's uh, archetypally described as the meeting of old age, sickness, and death. These uh, inevitable aspects of our life that most of us are going like this, unless or until we can't. And often those are the things that pull us in to a practice that take us out of (laughs) the imagination that if only I had more money, a bigger house, a better partner, uh, fill in the blank, you know, a new pair of shoes, then I would be happy. So those are the kinds of things that get us to go, oh, right, no, something else. So there's the difficult things that we inspire, but also in the story of the Buddha, he is inspired to leave his palace by seeing a wandering sadhu, a monk, a wandering ascetic, walking peacefully under a tree, and it touches something in him. It wakes something up in him. And my guess is that for each of you, there is something. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night. You'd be out at the movies or at the bar or, I don't know, checking your email. (laughs) Right? So there's something that gets touched in us, and sometimes we don't even know. I remember, I, I think I told this story here a little bit before, but when I first, in my 20s, showed up at the door of San Francisco Zen Center, I thought it was so weird. My mind was saying, weird, 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 weird. And yet, I just kept going back. Something was touched in me, even though it didn't make cognitive sense. I couldn't explain it to myself. Fortunately, that didn't get in my way at that point. And maybe for me, there was enough suffering at that point that I I got. You know, I don't think I'm going to be able to figure this one out. So I kept going back. Something resonated. So that may be true for each of you, whether you have a story about it or language about it at this point or not. But I would suggest 
that whatever that, that was that brought you here or whatever it was that has you wanting to meditate or even explore a path, pay attention. Listen. Check it out for yourself. It's yours. And while there is a universality to that kind of resonance that Joseph Campbell in his hero's journey would call the call, hearing the call, it's also very specific and unique to each person. So don't, don't take somebody else's call. <laughs> Make sure that you're listening deeply enough to really hear your own and be true to that, whatever it is. So a bodhisattva is initially touched. There's a resonance. Sometimes in Buddhist teaching it's described as a quivering of the heart. Something resonates. And as that inspiration comes in and touches something that's already here, what comes then is an aspiration. There's a wish. This is this altruistic impulse to help You don't even necessarily know what you want to help or how you want to help, but just it's a natural response. Now, initially, when you want to help, you may not be you may want to help but not be that skillful at it. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? You really, really, really want to help and you're bumbling around making things worse, right? And that in effect is the whole movement of the path, is that we take this beautiful, nascent I'm calling it an aspiration. It's really love. Something is touched in us, and that movement, that pull toward wanting to help, wanting to connect, wanting like that, that's love. Love not so much as an emotion, but really as a force. It's a pull toward each other. It's a pull toward life itself. The path is about taking that spark that altruistic spark in the Tibetan tradition it's called bodhicitta citta is the mind or the mind awareness mind heart bodhicitta is that spark that initial spark and then the practice on the path over time is the maturing the deepening the wisening it's like our love is matured through wisdom over time rather than our love being, what, beat down, jaded, becoming cynical, shut down. That's what happens a lot if we don't find a place where we can continue to allow ourselves to really open fully to what we care about, to what we love, to listening to those impulses, that small, quiet voice within, as the Quakers would say. So that aspiration as a spark uh, becomes, in the context of a formal sort of bodhisattva path, a reorientation from what we might call living by habit, or living by, in the Buddhist, Buddhist terminology, would be living by karma, which just means, karma just means action, but in that context what it means is just reactive, habitual action. So pleasant, grab. Unpleasant, reject. That's karmic activity. It's not intentional, it's not thoughtful, it's not aware, it's just happening. (laughs) And it's really humbling. 
frankly. If you start to pay attention to yourself as you move through the day, and we tend to think of ourselves as being, you know, thoughtful and intentional and so on. If we're really honest, we're just getting bad around all day. Bat, bat, bat. Between pleasant and unpleasant experience. And we see that, you can see it very clearly when you're sitting. I, for me, it's sometimes almost humorous because I can come into sitting down thinking, yeah, hmm, you know, I know who I am or I know how to do this. And then I sit and who knows what's going to happen. Sometimes, you know, the mind this morning, this was true for me as I was sitting and I mean, I almost started laughing out loud. It was like, wow. And I think I'm in charge? Come on. Really. Right? This is a good kind of humility. <laughs> right? Not a defeatist, now I'm going to beat myself up for it. Humility. Humility in a good way. Humility is about humus. Humus is earth. Humility is about touching the ground, being realistic about who we really are. So that initial impulse becomes articulated as moving from living by karma, by habit, but from re- by reaction to living by, sometimes described as living by vow, living by aspiration, living by intention. Now here's the catch, <laughs> especially for those of us in America and maybe especially for those of us in the Bay Area. You just moved here, I know, so this may not count for, he just moved from the Midwest, so it may not count for him quite as much. But here in Northern California and the Bay Area, we can turn anything into like another thing on our to-do list. So there is this wonderful way that the Bodhisattva vows, traditional vows, are framed that help us undo that, which is that they, the traditional vows, are impossible. Does anybody remember what they are from last week? Beings are numberless. Say it again. Yeah. But, but great. Two for four. That's good. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Huh? Give that project to your go-getter self. Right? Go ahead. Beings are numberless. Beings? Beings. Beings are numberless. No, beings, like sentient beings. Say it that way. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Now, this is not meant to be grandiose. It's meant to be impossible. Right? The second one, Heather was saying, Dharma gates are boundless. Yes. I vow to enter them. Also impossible, right? You had the third one. I believe it's delusions. Delusions. Yeah. Yeah. Delusions are inexhaustible, are endless. I vow to end them, cut them. And the fourth is Buddha's way, but the path itself is insurpassable. You know, it's the best of the best. I vow to become it. So last week when I was here, I said, so what do you guys make of all that? These like completely impossible vows. Does it make you feel like, oh, forget it? I'm going to go take up Sufi dancing where I can actually do something and accomplish it. 
or not. And surprising to me, a number of people said they felt something like relief. So I don't know how you fall on that spectrum. But what I want to point to is that those vows are pointing us, it's like we point our cart north when we want to go south. Those vows are pointing south. They're actually pointing us in the direction we want to go. And the direction we want to go is in the direction of not being able to get everything we want. Not being able to do it. It's, it's opening this, if at its best, it's opening this possibility for us that, oh, maybe there's some whole other way of engaging with life that I haven't even figured out yet. So see if that can touch some part of you. And I know for me, the, the supercharged, revved up, go-getter self found this incredibly frustrating for a long time. What do you mean? Or, I'll show them. I, I know it's impossible, but I'm going to do it anyway. Etc. This is a, the vow itself is a humbling practice to say, oh. And it's also meant to be a reorientation. And the vow, that kind of orienting toward those kinds of vows, tells us that we're stepping from the normal world the normal world where the whole point is to get as much good stuff as we can and get away from as much bad stuff as we get, all that, and we're going into a different plane of reality. Different rules, and we may not understand it, but it may touch something. Because you know what? All that getting and getting away from, it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in us we know that. And we think there must be some other way. Now, the, this, the particular language of these vows may or may not speak to you, but that's the intent, or it's one of the ways you can take it, if you like. I remember, uh, as I was reflecting on this, uh, early-ish early in my practice, in the first decade or so, um, I had been living at the Zen Center for... I don't know. I lived there for about five years, and this was maybe five years out. And I was, at the time, um, teaching classes. And I was teaching a year-long professional coaching course for a little professional coaching company. And the wonderful program and classes, and 20 people would come, and we'd work with them over a whole year. And uh, those of you who have ever been in a teacher role will most appreciate this story. So I had this one really difficult student. <laughs> and I tried everything I knew how to do to manipulate, placate, intervene, back off, etc. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't working. And at some point, I think I kind of got like, oh, I think this person is maybe a little crazy. Like I kept trying to engage as if the something that I would do would be would work and it just kept not working so at some point I had a conversation with this uh, old Zen teacher of mine and I went to him and I said you know I realized that I just I I don't have the skill or capacity to help her and I was feeling a little proud of myself for like 
copying to and doing what felt like humility because it was true it was like all right uncle like I think I'm pretty good at this but this woman wins because I cannot figure out how to work with her in any skillful way and he said to me I remember still he said don't say you can't say you want to and you don't know how that's humility so that is really at the it's the flavor of that vow it's the willingness to let yourself want to save all beings and to acknowledge to have the real humility to say I don't know how to do it but I want to and to allow ourselves to feel those what can feel like polar poles just as are pointed to in the poem from Ryokan. You know, it's all perfect and, right? I really want to and I don't know how. We don't tend to like that, we humans. Right? What we like is, show me what to do, I'm gonna get it done, I'm gonna check it off my list and go on to the next thing. But we do that for a while and then something inside dries up. We're like, really? I did all this stuff, I got all the gold stars, I got, and now I'm still not happy. Hmm. Maybe there's another way. This is a pointer. So I could go on, but this is, uh, this is a, more or less as far as I got last time. And I meant to try to go further into, well, we have the being touched, We have the initial spark, the aspiration. We have the aspiration that becomes a vow, and a vow is a reorientation, as a stepping into the world with a new perspective. And if we look at the Eightfold Path, the first two steps of the path are in what's called the wisdom bucket, and they are wise view and wise intention or aspiration. So this part is that, that the view is the view of one, understanding that life has suffering in it, and wanting to do something to help, and recognizing that we may not know how. All of that is in the realm of wise view. And the wise intention is to say, even though I don't know how, even though it looks impossible, Uh, I'm pointing myself in this direction. I'm going to turn my cart around from north and go south. I'm going to point. That's the aspiration. That's the intention. It's a pointing of the cart. And then the whole rest of the path unfolds. And the whole rest of the path, as I was saying at the beginning, is basically just a deepening of that aspiration. It's an increasing skillfulness in being able to meet our circumstances with greater and greater kindness, greater and greater skillfulness. It is, in the language that I used earlier, a maturing of that nascent, pure, innocent, beautiful love, finding its footing, if you will, finding its footing in your body, in your activity, in your engagement, in your speech, and how that plays out uh, in the world which I think is so needed for all of us. 
Because most of us, if we look around, like, we're in, this is a technical term, we are in deep doo-doo, my friends. Really. So the normal ways of trying to address a lot of that is just not going to work. Which, again, it doesn't mean that if there's somebody falls down on the street that you don't go and help them up because, like, oh, who, what difference does it make? We're all doomed. No, you, you still help where you can help. But in order to really address the mess that we're in, it's going to require a different mind, a different orientation, a different way of engaging with our lives. And it turns out that that way of engaging is the path to freedom and joy, even in the midst of difficulty. Because we're not in charge. We don't know what's going to happen. But we want to give it our best, you know. We want to engage fully. That's what is both the request and the promise of the path. So I'll pause and see if you have questions, reflections, confusions. Anything you would like to say or ask is uh, most welcome. Please. Um, yeah, just kind of a question, or if you can distinguish between like joy and happiness, because the way I understood it, um, you know, you talked about last said about you know engaging fully with life, yep, brings more joy. But then I think at the beginning of the talk you were talking about yeah. happiness and no. Yeah. So the question is. The difference between, I was saying that there is there is joy that comes, and at the beginning, you're pointing to accurately that I was a little bit poo-pooing happiness, mm-hmm. right? So why would I poo-poo it on one side and then say, hey, look, you get to be happy? So I was a little bit sloppy language on my part. Um, what I was trying to point to is that the happiness I was poo-pooing was the happiness of wanting pleasant, pleasant uh, states of mind and heart, and imagining if we could just have those all the time, that we would be happy. I think that's sort of the fantasy version of happy that we have. The joy that I was pointing to on the other end is really a joy that the Buddha described that is, sometimes the, the technical language is, beyond conditions. There is a joy that comes from being with what's here, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It's part of the rigor of the practice of sitting in meditation. And also one of the big and wonderful insights that comes for people often is that we start to discover that right in the middle of difficulty, there can be something wonderful. Mm -hmm. And also, right in the middle of wonderful, there can be something difficult. Right? I used the example the other night of, um, you know, we have right in the middle of horrible seeing of, uh, you know, the ongoing oppression and racist behavior, systemic racism in our country. We're seeing it. It's awful. And isn't it great that finally it's being seen? Right? So it's almost, our life is almost always that way, that it's both good and bad 
depending on which angle you're looking. Or I was using the other example of look at, if you look at the, um, uh, the victory after years and years of uh, gay marriage passing, of becoming legal, wonderful and with all that wonderfulness, all of a sudden is revealed how much work there's left to do. So you see that it's never really one way when we look closely, right? So the joy is the joy of uh, being with what is, regardless of the pleasant or unpleasant tone. Yeah? Thank you. I think many people here have probably had that experience of being the joy of, how would I say, like not being reactive to a difficult circumstance, right? So someone cuts you off in traffic and you're ready to, and you catch yourself and there's a joy in that, even though the circumstance was difficult, right? So that's the kind of joy that I'm pointing to. Yeah, it's a good, good question and helpful clarification. Thank you. Yeah. When I talk about that sort of joy to people that don't follow the practice, it seems to really confuse people. Totally. Like, I had kind of lost my path for a minute and got caught up in reactiveness and hurt and blame and I was sitting in here with you and you said that and all of a sudden I woke up and it was hilarious Mm -hmm. just (laughs) right in the middle of sitting there suffering trying to figure out whose fault it was and they did it (laughs) and I was miserable and it had been miserable for like three days and all of a sudden it was like the most hilarious thing I'd ever seen. Oh, look at me being so human. Right. And when I try to explain that to people, they, they act like there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. There's a phrase that the Buddha used that the, the path and practice go uh, against the stream. Hmm? I, I taught on <laughs> Friday night at the Friday night Sangha, which is called Against the Stream the Dharma punks group and they borrowed that phrase because it's a way of saying yeah we're going to push against the cultural norms but in fact as you're describing we're not pushing just against cultural norms we're also pushing against our own habitual norms and and there's this reorientation that happens where it takes real uh, patience and attentiveness and honesty to recognize that, you know, no, that third piece of chocolate cake did not make me happy. (laughs) What made me happy was when I was kind to myself when I twisted my ankle, you know. So it's, it's in the difficult experience that we can discover this kind of bloom of joy. And that because that's not a pleasant state, which is what most people take as equals happy, then there's confusion. What do you mean? How could that be happiness? So sometimes I think we could use freedom instead of happy. Mm-hmm. 
or that you can stop, not have the third piece of cake. You can not, yeah, and that could make you happy. There you go. Right, right. So there's, there's. I'll, I'll just name this because uh, I'm hoping to talk about it as we go forward, which is that sometimes I think that the path, particularly the bodhisattva path, but the whole of the path can be thought of with these three elements. Inspiration, taking in, being touched. Aspiration, which is from that place of being touched, expressing our own wish to be in the world, to engage with life from a deeper place, a freer place. So inspiration, aspiration, and the end is what I call appropriate response. Mm -hmm. That the whole goal of the practice is, again, it's not just to be in the happy place, but it's increasingly to be able to respond appropriately with skill and with kindness to whatever comes. I borrow that term from a Zen story. What is the teaching of your entire lifetime? The Zen master was asked on his deathbed, and he said, an appropriate response. So it's a long path between aspiration and appropriate response. A long path doesn't mean that you don't have lots of times of responding appropriately along the way, but it could be many lifetimes, right? It's a living path. It's a living dharma. And so we're cultivating increasingly the capacity to respond more and more skillfully with more and more freedom and experiencing more and more of the kind of real joy that we're pointing to. So that path has two dimensions. One is a path of renunciation. It's about what do we let go of. Our views, our opinions, it could also be people, it could be things, it could be... But there is a... uh, The hard, the pinch of the path is that we're asked to let go. To give up. Then there's another side of the path which is more the path of cultivation. And cultivation is the cultivation of all these capacities like those four qualities of heart that we chanted at the beginning. Of kind. And cultivation I like better than development, <laughs> which sounds more like building a building. Cultivation is more like tending a garden. So we're cultivating these capacities that are in, they're innate, they're in us, but we're watering them and tending them and helping them bloom. So the path has these two kind of arms to it. One side is letting go, which we don't like much, we humans. And the other side is cultivation, which actually we don't like much either. Most of us are in the we want it now school. We're used to that. But this is uh, one way to think about and reflect. So I invite you to consider as you reflect in the next number of weeks till I'll be back and you are welcome to reflect for as long as you like if you never come back. What is it? What's my, what's touched me? What's my aspiration, my wish, my longing? What is it that I could let go of? What, do I, what would I step out of, release, relinquish, renounce? And what is it that would want to be cultivated in me to support that aspiration? So that bit by bit, inch by inch, uh, I can engage in the world with skill and with kindness. This is uh, 
not a quiz. <laughs> These are questions that you're invited to chew on for maybe a few lifetimes. <laughs> so you can release yourself from any pressure of trying to get it right by like next week. Okay. <laughs> well, let's sit for a few minutes as we close. <laughs> 